Welcome to Wood Talk Online Radio, for woodworkers, by woodworkers. Now here are three guys that are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt and Shannon. Alright, it's episode 97 for May 9th, 2012. On today's show, we're talking about saving money by building your own furniture, using jigs for hand-tool work, and a few topics that we pushed back from last week's show, including how to make a rule joint and long-term wood, or yeah, not wood, tool storage. Now, this is normally where I throw it to Matt, and Matt is not here today. It's just Shannon and I, so... Um, oh, do I get to do it? Do if, I get to do it? If you want to do it, it's all you, man. Woohoo! As always, there's a few different ways you can get a hold of us. If you ever have a comment, question, hate mail, suggestion, or something you've heard <laughs> in today's show, maybe something you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode... Matt, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing you proud here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 623-242-5180 or Skype us at woodtalkonline. You can, of course, find us on the internets at our individual sites at mattsbasementworkshop.com, thewoodwhisperer.com, and renaissancewoodworker.com. And of course, don't forget the forum at woodtalkonline.com. Woohoo! Nice. Well done. You know what's funny? I just realized how freaking fast Matt reads that. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's like Slow one down. Yeah, one <laughs> string of indistinguishable words. <laughs> he does it in one breath. It's impressive. <laughs> he really does. I know he practices it. Yeah, he does. He's warming up before every show. All right, so we're uh, we're we're alone today, just Shannon and I. We're gonna actually skip what's on the bench. Uh, here's the interesting thing: we're doing the show regularly enough that uh, some weeks the same thing is gonna be on the bench. It's that that the was same there, thing. that was there last week. So we're just gonna skip that. And we actually do have some interesting stuff to just kind of have a little conversation about, and we'll jump right in there. This is kind of part of our around the web segment. And I came across Jeff Miller's jigs. Actually, I think a lot of people came across this, posted on Popular Woodworking's blog. And I guess Jeff Miller was demonstrating a few of his handy-dandy little jigs that he has there. One for sawing, one for paring mortises, one you said was like a, pl- uh, a planing thing. Yeah, like a thickness planing depth stop thingy. There so so the, there's a couple videos there. Check them out. They're, they're very cool. The idea here is they're guiding the tool to help you do more exact and consistent work but what's different here is we don't normally see this in the world of hand tools we see this in the world of power tools where we have jigs and fixtures and all kinds of things to help us get accurate results so the the emotion from this is is very mixed if you read the comments some people are like what a waste of time why don't you just learn how to saw properly uh, then, other, then other people are like, well, I, I could use any help I can get. So if something like this helps me saw straight, I'll take it. And then other people are like, well, you know, why not just use a power tool? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know so, actually, I hadn't even come down on that side. Yeah. If you're going to do all that, why not use a power tool? Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Right off the bat, I honestly, in, in a situation like this and someone as someone who actually goes out there and, and shows people how to do woodworking, I personally think whatever anyone wants to do, they should do. That's that's my personal feeling on it. But when I see this, I can actually still sympathize with every side of the argument. You know, so I'm curious: Do you have a, a very specific opinion on this, or are you falling on the more generic "it's you know whatever you want to do" kind of side of things? Um, you know what? Just for the sake of controversy, I'll have a very specific opinion. <laughs> okay. Um, because I'm just like you. I could fall on any of these. Ultimately. If if it's safe, there is no right or wrong in woodworking. I mean, let's be real. 
there's 20 different ways at minimum to do a single task. If you're not endangering yourself and others, go for it. You know, I mean, if it works for you, do it. But um, since I'm going to choose to be controversial, I fall on the side of uh, I don't like using jigs when it comes to hand tool work. I don't like the idea of I'll just say it, training wheels, you know, if, if it's a jig that will get you good results to start and it gradually teaches you the, um, you know, the proper technique or more importantly with hand tools, it's so sensory, you know, what does the saw sound like? You can tell when the saw is cutting right by the sound, what's the feedback into your hand. I just had a comment on my blog the other day about why don't people wear gloves? It's safer. I can't feel the vibration in the saw with gloves. I can't feel my hand plane. I can't feel the wood with gloves. It's so sensory. So if you have a jig, and I'm thinking specifically of the tenon sawing jig in, in this um, on the web and in this article in Popular Woodworking, right. to me, it works like a miter box where it kind of locks the path of the saw and it holds it straight up and down. So yeah, you're going to get a good cut, but you're not learning about, you can feel when the saw is cutting straight up and down. And if you don't learn that, you're never going to get any better. Whereas I've seen jigs that kind of help to guide you. Even uh, Veritas has one that has magnets. Right. Um, there's enough play there. Now, I'll be honest, I'm speaking a little bit out in my backside here because I haven't used that jig, but I've seen it used and you can, your hand is, is still free to move on the saw and the magnet's not so strong that it locks it in place. So you still are getting a feel for like the saw moving freely through the wood. Um, of course, not having tried, you know... Um, Jeff's jig, I could, I probably could say the same thing, but to me, if you use a miter box to cut a perfect 90 degree, um, end on a board, that's great. And it really helps speed things up. But I really think there's something to be said about doing it for lack of a better term, freehand, right? Because you'll, uh, in my experience, I found that it really doesn't take that much work before you, you feel it and you can channel that inner square and the, the reason for that is there's always a time when the jig's not going to work. There always is going to be a time. Right. So the solution is, do I go and modify this jig? Do I build another jig in order to make it work? Or do I just pull out the handsaw and make the cut? And so much of my decision to go hand tools, well, a lot of it is historical. I, I love that stuff. I get into that stuff. But there's also a strong point of, you know, if you can, in the instance of sawing, if you can see the line, you can saw to it. There's no need to worry about setup or any of that other stuff. And if I, I go way off my line, I know how to fix that with a chisel. I know how to work down to my line with a plane. You know, some of the, the biggest benefit you can gain by not using one of these jigs is fixing it when you go outside your line assuming that you don't go onto the keep side of the line because you can't add wood back on. But, right. you know, I think there's a real learning. And, and again, this is coming from a guy who's not building furniture for a living. So I'm constantly focusing on what can I do that's going to help improve my skill set. And, you know, so much of my hand tool usage is based around the idea that it will make you a better woodworker. If you learn to do these things freehand, if you will, um, it's just going to make you so much better in the long run. Right. So, you know, that you can very quickly get into this idea that, oh, jigs are cheating. And there's no such thing as cheating (laughs) in woodworking. Um, You know, honing guide, no honing guide. If it works, do it. But if you want to teach yourself the skills, 
a jig that's going to lock everything in place and control the motion, I don't think is really a good idea. Well, what I find interesting is obviously Jeff Miller is an accomplished woodworker. Yeah, I mean, the know, man can kick my butt up one side and the other when it comes to woodworking. So Right, so, so you look <laughs> at what his motivations or what someone's motivations might be for something like this. So um, as opposed to thinking from the learning perspective, how about production? Because now here, here's a jig that's going to allow you to possibly move faster or cut more accurately or batch these things out uh, much quicker than you might freehand. And actually, maybe that's a good question. How much time... Uh, compared to someone who is proficient at doing this accurately without a jig, um, do you think this is really going to save you a lot of time, or is this maybe the time savings is in the fact that you have less cleanup to do when it's done? Because even if you're good, you're probably still going to have some cleanup. Uh, this is a system that kind of seems to get around that. There won't be nearly as much cleanup to do when you're done, uh, and you can kind of drink coffee with one hand and, and use your saw with the <laughs> other one while you're you <laughs> while you're right. doing this watching tv (laughs) what i wonder is does he still lay out all of his joints before he cuts this because the you know the the one thing when it comes to the precision of power tools you know you make that the hand tool guys were always like whoa i don't have to make test cuts i don't have to deal with all this setup and everything and the power tool guys are like yeah but i do that once and then i make 20 joints and i'm good right you know the the precision that power tools offer us means that a lot of times you you really don't have to hit every joint with that marking knife or the pencil, you don't need that because you you do that once, you get the setup right, and you just batch it out. So if he's still laying out his joints and using these things, I can't imagine that it saves that much time. Unless you're just really, really bad. You know, you <laughs> yeah. can't saw even close to any line. But when you're talking mortise and tendon joinery, um, you know, a little bit of practice and you've got your joints fitting off the saw. In fact, the, that's the goal is to fit off the saw because usually where you screw things up is the tweaking of that joint and suddenly now it's too loose in there. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, the other thing to think about is, you know, we get a, a lot of um, professional woodworkers writing articles for popular woodworking and things. And that's great because they've got a lot of experience and they build a lot of stuff. So they've kind of been around the block. But if you build a lot of the same stuff, a jig is great. Oh yeah. You know, it's the same idea of batching stuff out. Um, I, and again, not having an in-depth knowledge and not having used these jigs, like for instance, the jig you use for quick pairing of mortises, I would think that that's going to be pretty dependent upon the type of mortises you cut and the width of the mortises you cut. I don't know if that jig is adjustable. Um, Probably, and I'm sure there there are jig-making savants out there that can make any jig infinitely adjustable. And then that becomes more about making the jig than making the furniture. But the minute that the hobbyist woodworker who basically every project they take on is drastically different from the next one, you know, one day I could be building a cabinet and the next day I'm building, you know, a joint stool out of green wood. Right. You know, the techniques are so 180 degrees different. And, you know, sometimes the tools are different, everything. I mean, if you go from round mortise and tendons to square mortise and tendons, you're going to have to make a different jig, you know? Of course, um, right. So I look at a guy like Jeff Miller. Now, Jeff, I mean, he makes some pretty cool stuff, but I think um, he makes a fair amount of chairs too, doesn't he? I believe so. Yeah, that's – let me let me actually just look for – But, quick you know, going, going that analogy, you look at a guy like Brian Boggs who makes incredible chairs, and he has some of the coolest-looking jigs you've ever seen, but he has specifically designed them to answer a very specific need, mm-hmm. a very specific joint that attaches – you know, the side rails to the back leg of one of his chairs. And he's right, got right. this like crazy, like multi-axis mortising jig 
that's so cool to look at. But he built that because he integrates that joint in just about every one of his pieces of in every one of his chairs. Of course, right. So, so, so let me let me ask you this then. You're, you you look at someone like Jeff Miller, even if he is doing it for production purposes or something to speed up his process. At what point does it just, from a common sense perspective, as modern woodworkers, does it stop making sense to use hand tools? Like he's doing this clearly because he wants more accuracy, uh, repeatability, and he doesn't want to have to you know rely on manual dexterity to get that job done. So isn't that what a power tool is for? <laughs> like at what point do we say, well then, you know, other than because I'm at a woodworking show where I'm showcasing hand tools, so I need to show hand tools, you know, in the shop, real woodworker perspective, is there a point where you jig something up so much and you're trying to speed things up so much that it's like, well, dummy, just use a power tool. A router could get that job done very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, is there a tipping point when, when it comes to stuff like this? I think we're there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is it, um, right? I, I mean, have, I have my copy of popular woodworking open right here. Um, and you know what? I, I know that there were videos, but I haven't seen them yet. So I should really go watch them. But, um, you know, I'm looking at the first page of this. It shows this tending jig. And again, it looks exactly like a miter box. He's even gone so far as to put that, um, ultra high molecular weight, um, plastic right, yeah, or plastic inserts, um, to, to, add the, the, you know, smooth, the, the cut and everything. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work that went into this jig and what is he doing? He's cutting tenon cheeks with this. Well, um, <laughs> you know, a table saw would do that. Hell, a fence and a bandsaw. Uh, well, actually, you know, to go more accurately, cause the saw is going to leave a rougher cut than like a dado stack. Right. Right. So, a finely tuned bandsaw and a fence is going to make the same cut, actually probably a smoother cut with the right blade. So, you know, you, you actually bring up a really good point. I think we've hit that point. Honestly, the minute you start incorporating jigs into hand tools, I wonder if we're not, because what does the jig do? It kind of locks the, the movement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it controls all that stuff. Well, isn't that what a power tool is? Right. I mean, things move along set axes and such, probably being too general there, but... Well, I guess, I don't, I don't know. See, and there, this is the one thing that I get concerned about is some people get on the, the hand tool uh, bandwagon <laughs> and they, they, they clearly want to be a power tool woodworker, but they're so stuck on the hand tool right. thing. And, and you know who I'm talking about, not specifically, but the, the, to the personality that they will go to Matt. any extent. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> I hear Matt has problems with routers. Uh, last oh. I heard, <laughs> he's scared of them. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it feels like there may be some folks, not everyone, but some folks out there who are so determined to just use hand tools, but they might have that sort of engineer's mindset that wants yeah. the repeatability and accuracy that that hand tools offer, but they refuse to plug something in. So that's where something like this makes an appearance. Well, you in the know, shop. there's the other side of things. Well, okay, when when is this necessary, and when do you not go to a power tool if you have no power? Okay. There's yeah, that. Right. Say you live in a log cabin in the middle of the woods somewhere. Um, <laughs> that's when this is a good idea. Yeah. But what I also think has happened is this, this hand tool renaissance, hand tool craze has had so many people go out and buy really expensive hand tools. It's not an expense thing anymore. We used to say as hand tool guys, oh, well, I can save money by going hand tools. That's <laughs> not the case anymore. No. You can't buy antique tools cheaply anymore. It's I don't care what Chris Shores says he found for $10 in a yard sale. I'm not seeing it. Right. Stuff's expensive. eBay's Old, ridiculous. New, oh, my God. eBay is off the charts expensive now. Yeah. 
the the tool auctions are ridiculously expensive. You're spending the same amount, if not more, sometimes than you are going the power tool world. So that's not an excuse anymore. But I think the buyer's remorse of the guy that bought the saw and can't cut a tenon to save his life. Mm-hmm. Like, damn it, I'm using this tenon saw. <laughs> I spent $250 on this. Come thing. hell or high water, I'm you know, cutting I am cutting a tenon. I'm not going to now go out and buy a bandsaw because I just spent $250 <laughs> on this. So right. it's kind of the the consolation prize. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here's a jig that will allow you to cut with that handsaw. Right, right. Um, so maybe maybe that's where this is coming from. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that solution seems to strengthen my own opinion that you know what spend a little bit of time actually make some practice cuts that would be the big thing yeah. i get i get emails all the time from people who like uh, they they hear the hand tool school and they're like oh i want to join but you know i need to buy a bunch of tools first i saw your tool list that you list for the first semester and i need to get all those tools and i'm like i usually email back within 30 seconds don't stop <laughs> don't do that don't add to cart please <laughs> i mean like if you're a beginner you may hate hand tool woodworking yeah. you may go this guy's off his rocker or nine times out of ten they're like this milling thing it sucks joinery oh i love using my hand saws for joinery but i'm getting a thickness planer and a joiner so yeah. a guy went out and bought you know a number seven he bought maybe a number five and you know a bunch of planes for milling i mean four planes and scrub planes what are those those are thickness planes well, if you have a thickness planer, you know, and, and you realize that you can't do this or it's incredibly hard work or you can't get, you know, results, you just spent $600 on, say, Lee Nielsen planes. And you could have spent $600 and bought like a bench top thickness planer. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and that's the thing is, you know, I'm not I'm not an extremist, I guess. It's saying no power whatsoever. Um I use my thickness planer (laughs) to shatter anybody's illusion, but I use my thickness planer a lot. And I think that so many people have tried to go the the whole power tool or excuse me, hand tool route. And now they're kind of thinking, Ooh, I wish I had spent the money. It's, it's a tough way to go, man. I mean, if if you got a bandsaw and a planer and you add that to your arsenal, that just is going to, it's going to make you, I think for the average person like the craft a whole lot more. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And you know, I think that, there, there's something to be said about building something entirely by hand once. Do it once, yeah, you know, yeah. so that and, and I'm, I'm constantly this idea of learning how to do it will make you better because there's always going to be a wider board than what your power tool can handle. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's always going to be an instance where your saw won't cut at that weird angle and you need to be able to, to do it. Even if you cobble it out and you plane it away down to the line, you need to feel comfortable doing that. But you know, once you've done it, now you can say, okay, been there, done that. Yeah. And you can <laughs> power it up, baby. Other more fun <laughs> ways to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean this, this clock I'm building right now, I've, I've built it entirely by hand with the exception of the panel for the door. Cause it was a 12 inch wide board and I frankly was feeling lazy. Yeah. yeah. So I whipped out the four plane and I flattened one edge enough so that it didn't rock. And I ran it to the thickness planer <laughs> and it was curly cherry. Right. And, you know, yes, I can get, I, I've done it before. I've gotten a tear out free surface and I will have to do it with my smoothing plane before I put finish on it. But it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> on our uh, first guild project, the shaker table, I did one power tools and the second one, I right. would say mostly hand tools. It wasn't all hand tools, 
Um, and I'm good. I'm good. I'm done. Thanks. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I did it. Uh, that's close you know, enough. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of the the true galoots out there, they're they're a little bit like me, and they're kind of into the historical aspect of things. Right. They they like they 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 dig that part, and that's pretty cool. And now I'm not going to be wearing knickers and stockings like Adam Carabini, but it, it's mm-hmm. there's something that that's kind of cool about that part. So I can understand that, but you know. Heck, talk to the guys in Williamsburg. They've all got table saws and joiners and thickness planers in their basement. <laughs> right. Tell you what I do when I go home. I fire up my jointer. Hey. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's about that. We'd love to hear your opinions on something like this. This is one of those things that I think really, when you first see it, you know, you, you kind of go, okay, that's neat. But then you realize the implications are a little bit deeper on what this might mean. And I think it's a very personal thing, whether or not you think this is useful, if it's a waste of time, if it's just silly. Um, you know, is it, is it along the lines of something like, like a honing guide for sharpening, or is this a little bit more crazy to even think of, of worrying about something like this? So, uh, definitely send us some voicemails or emails. We'd love to hear your opinions. All right. Uh, speaking of the voicemails, we've got a couple that we can go through here. The first one is from Nathan and he's got a question concerning, this is interesting. I, I didn't play this for you ahead of time, Shannon. So let me know if you can't hear it, but it's about, uh, whether or not woodworking saves you money in the long run when you build your own furniture. Hey guys, it's Nathan from Sydney, Australia here. I've got a question. One of the reasons I got into woodworking was to save money by building my own furniture rather than going down to the local furniture store and buying it there. But what I'm quickly learning is it takes a fairly large investment in tools and equipment. Um, and I'm wondering, will I ever earn that money back by building my <laughs> own furniture? So. <laughs> Is it possible for a hobbyist woodworker to save money in the long run by building their own furniture? I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, uh, it depends. Clearly, it depends on what furniture you it might... depends on your taste in furniture. Yeah, where you buy it and how much you're willing to spend on regular furniture. Are you shopping at Ikea and Walmart? Or are you going to Ethan Allen? Are you going to some weird independent furniture dealer that just deals with you know specialty stuff? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. Um, I would say in general, it's an uphill battle. You know, speaking of like the average, let's say mid- average middle class uh, household, it, just as an example here, looking on Amazon, I found a tech craft, obviously, you know, not the highest quality, but this is what the average person might buy. Uh, it's a small credenza for that fits most 50 inch and smaller flat panel TVs. It's a little entertainment center. Um, it's got glass, uh, panels on the front. It's, you know, probably made out of poop wood and covered with poop finish, but it's, you know, looks okay. This would fit the bill. And I think as long as you don't move it too much, it probably would last for, you know, a while, a long time. Um, right. You move it, you might be in trouble. Um, this thing costs $234 and I look at this and think in terms of, okay, if I were to build that, I might spend $230 just in materials. Um, you know, you got to get the glass for the front, you, you clearly some plywood there. So maybe that's a little, you know, maybe 150 bucks, uh, to, to get the materials for this. Now he's also talking about the shop. So how many thousands of dollars do we typically invest in our, our shops to get those going? So every project you do has to not only, uh, come in under, but come in under enough to recuperate the costs of getting those tools in the first place. Uh, so when I see a, a little credenza like this at $234, it's going to take me a real long time. Um, now, now the the upside is that your furniture that you're building should be something that lasts for your entire life and can probably be passed down from generation to generation. So you've got that going right. for you. 
But you left your mark, your legacy. <clears throat> that's true, yes. And, and I don't really think it's, you know, for me, it's not about saving money. And anytime someone comes up to me to have me build something for them and their motivation is to save money, I tell them they're in the wrong place. Right. <laughs> that's really tough. I mean, what do you what do you think? I mean, do you ever do you ever see yourself saving money? You get more value, but do you ever save money by building a piece <laughs> of furniture yourself? No. And and I work at a lumberyard. <laughs> so material costs are much much less for me than they are for you. And yeah. no. No, I don't save money, not at all. And and I don't buy really tools anymore now, you know, but if you, if I think in the terms of making up all the money that I spent so that I'm now in the black, no, <laughs> no way. Good. Um, I've got some expensive tools yeah, yeah. and I've sold some expensive tools for a sizable loss, you know, so there's that I'm definitely fighting an uphill battle. And I think even regardless of your taste in furniture, even if you have like unbelievably refined tastes in furniture, um, you know, I guess unless you're buying from that one-off cabinet maker, um, it's still going to be hard because, right. say, to use your example, Mark, Ethan Allen. Well, what does Ethan Allen do? They buy lumber by the truckload, and they have enormous industrial machines. They have CNC machines, and they batch out quantity. The quality is still pretty good. I think a lot of us, you know, hobbyist woodworkers would take exception to some of the quality of Ethan Allen furniture, but, you know, that, that even then you know, their overhead per piece is going to be lower right? Um, because of the fact that they're uh, a factory where I guess if you look at a guy, since we talked about him earlier, somebody like Jeff Miller, you know, a guy in a shop building one of a kind type pieces, um, his price point is going to be a heck of a lot higher. Um, could you make the same thing and save money on it? I, maybe, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. I, I mean, because I mean, there's always the if there's always the kind of undefinable thing, the time element that yeah. goes into it. Right. I mean, I work slower than dirt, so for me to build a chair would easily take probably ten times as long as it takes Jeff Miller to build a chair. Right, right. So I mean, the minute you factor that in, there's no way. Yeah, there's well, no way you're doing it. Well, and I think for a hobbyist, that's that's the thing that you're consuming that you have oodles of. You know, most of us are. Yeah. You don't really can, you don't factor in that time because you're getting. That's your hobby. You're getting that satisfaction. So time is is a non-issue where for a pro that would be that would be a huge issue. Um, But here's an example. Let's say you are a little more refined in your taste. Let's say you're going uh, for some Moser furniture. I'm looking at a little shaker round stand. Just looks like a little round table, three legged table with a post. Uh, Fairly little wood in this. Actually, very, very little wood and something that I think. I mean, it's it's an it's an elegant little table, but I think it's you know there might be some something in the picture I'm not seeing in terms of complexity. But I, are you talking you, about that pedestal table? Uh, it's just they call it a shaker round stand on their website. I just went okay. to what's in stock right now. Uh, central round turned post yes. with a round top. Okay, yeah, exactly. The, yeah. So it's um you know not the most complicated piece, and and probably something most of us could could knock out in uh, in a week or two, if, depending on your time. Uh, nine hundred and fifty dollars. If that's hmm. what you're buying, you could build it for less. No doubt about yeah. it. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point because, you know, I, I immediately jumped towards, um, you know, 18th century furniture with the level of carving and the intricacy and everything. But, mm-hmm. you know, a, a shaker example or even an arts and crafts, probably not a green and green example, but a like a stickly style, probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that shaker stand, it's interesting you bring that up because that's actually a, a 
a project I have in mind for the hand tool school in a couple of semesters. So I've actually already spec'd it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm actually in my other job trying to assemble lumber packs and thinking, you know, can we provide this lumber pack for, for uh, members and everything? And, you know, it's $900, you said? 950 baht. Yeah, yeah. I, you can easily beat that price, and it's twenty easily. twenty-six by sixteen, so it's it's not it's not real big at all. Yeah. So, so and even think, the tooling, I think, is not that involved. I mean, you're going to mm -hmm. need a lathe. Um, well, I guess you don't need a lathe, but <laughs> you want to carve that with a chisel. Well, uh, you got you got one yeah. post, so you know, just grab a stick and and get at it with your block. Yeah, there you plane. go. Draw a knife, and you're good to go. But <laughs> yeah, you got it. Even then, I mean, the, there's three sliding dovetail joints in the bottom. And that's it, really. Yeah, well, there's a central round tenon that fits into the little piece on the bottom, but the that's just screwed to the tabletop. Um, yeah, it's not bad. I mean, construction-wise, it's fairly straightforward. But, but again, that's if that's the style you're getting, and you're you're looking at some of these more expensive brands like this, um, yeah. sure, that that you could save some money on. But I think if you're the average consumer and, and you're buying from where you know, I would say the vast majority of people are buying their furniture. Uh, even if you go to like the local furniture store that supposedly has good furniture, where if you just kind of peek under it, you see it's still particle board. It's just expensive particle board. Um, you know, <laughs> high quality. Particle it's board. very high quality. Um, that is something that you probably will have trouble um, <laughs> beating the price on for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I think the good news there is like the shaker style. Um, it, it's been contemporized a lot. Yeah. You know, you get a lot of guys, um, What's the, oh, shoot, the guy up in Vermont, Garrett Hack, mm -hmm. does a lot of uh, kind of contemporary shaker. He'll throw in like an exotic piece of wood for the top or maybe a little bit of stringing inlay on the front, and it's a very up-to-date look. Um, the good news is is a lot of people like that. A lot of people like arts and crafts. A lot of people like stickly, and a lot of people like shaker because it is simple. Right. You know, the, the 18th century stuff is a much smaller major mi minority because it's – Many people find it gaudy. It's just too overdone. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's dated in a lot of respects. So for the majority of us that really like that style, I guess you probably could save money. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Look Major. out, Thomas Mosier. We're coming for you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think their lawyers will be coming for us very, very quickly. Um, thanks for that, Nathan. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, this we're probably not going to dwell on it too long because it's a visual topic, but we'll, we'll give you some resources. Uh, John has a question about rule joints. Mark and Matt and Shannon, I've got a question for you regarding a rule joint for a drop leaf table. I'm just wondering if you could give me some advice on what you think might be the best method. Um, I presume there's a power method, probably using a router, and I know there's got to be a hand method uh, using planes or whatever. It's John Vero calling from Victoria, B.C., Canada. If you could answer the questions, I'd love it. Thank you very much. He would love it. All right. I Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's probably a hand tool way to do it, but nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to bother with that, right? Yeah, stupid hand tools. <laughs> um, I think what we can do here, I'll, I'll let you talk because I know you. this is a topic coming up in the hand tool school um, in the future, right? Yeah. Um, but I will put a couple of links to resources. This is something that's easier shown in pictures than it is to really explain. Yes, you, you would use a combination of uh, like a core box bit or a bullnose bit and a roundover bit to create what would be, you know, your sort of traditional rule joint. But there are some some fine details when it comes to getting those things to line up properly. 
And I've got a couple of PDF documents and links that I'll put in the show notes, various um, router bit companies and a few other resources explaining how to make a rule joint. Um, pretty pretty standard ways using some some simple router bits. Um, but Shannon, you, you've got something coming up. So I'm just curious, w- real quickly, if you want to run through, what would you do to, to do this by hand? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> Johnny V, he is a hand tool school member. So oh, there um, you go. <laughs> you're in luck coming this fall. Uh, I think he's actually already registered for that semester. So we're going to do a drop leaf table. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's based on a Thomas Mosier design. <laughs> Boy. Dun, dun, dun. Should we not mention <laughs> They really that, are coming or? after us. Um, <laughs> I plan on altering the design. Of course, it's, it's a Thomas Mosier design based on an original Shaker design. So I guess they don't really have a leg to stand on either. The the Really, we're talking about a roundover and a cove. Um, more specifically, an ovalo because there is um, a bit of a fillet, the little flat part right above the roundover. Um, and then the cove has a little flat part. So it's just the, the, what do you call it? The reverse of the other. Right. So it can be done with a match set of hollows and rounds. Um, and of course, John, you know, this, we covered sticking moldings in semester two of the hand tool school, but I mean, cut a rabbit to define the fillet and kind of chamfer off the corner a little bit, the remaining corner, and then hit it with a hollow and it will form that, that, um, uh, round over that exact shape all the way down the length of the board. And then you basically hit the, the drop leaf part of the table, hit the underside of that with the mate, the mating round uh, molding plane, mm-hmm. and it forms the converse. As long as you get your, your layout is key to getting those little fillets to be the exact, um, to, to match exactly. Frankly, the hardest part of the rule joint is installing the hinges. Because you got to get that, the, you know, what's it called? The pentel, the little pin in the middle, the center, the axis of the hinge the doohickey. has to be an exact, yeah, that, the doohickey. That's got to <laughs> be in exactly the right place so that you get that uh, drop leaf to close up properly when it's extended. Right. And when it drops, there shouldn't be any light. There shouldn't be a gap that's visible. So right. if it's, if the hinge is set, you know, too far out or too far in, the, the joint's either going to show a gap or it's going to bind. Um, that's the harder part than anything else. And I've gotten the resources that I have in these links go into a little bit more detail on that as well. So you know what, uh, know what you're in for. Yeah. All right. Got a question here from Roberto. Haven't heard from him in a long Roberto. time. Roberto. He's been very busy. Hey guys, how you doing? This is Roberto from New Mexico. A uh, long time, no talk. And overseas for the last 10 uh, to 11 months. But I'm back now. And uh, it's been a long time. I've done any kind of woodworking. And uh, my first of many questions to you guys is, um, <laughs> what, how, okay, I had my machine put in storage. You know, I put a nice film of paste uh, wax on all my tops and all that. Do you have any tips for me before I send everything out and start woodworking heavily? Um, I have all kinds of heavy machinery. Um, I haven't even been in my storage unit, unit just to see if anything uh I hope has not rusted on me. But if you guys have any tips for long-term um, storage of woodworking tools, that'd be great. See you guys. Okay, so long-term storage of woodworking tools, cast iron, and all that good stuff that likes to rust over time. Um, there, what is that stuff called? Is it co- cosmoline? Cosmoline. Yeah. Okay. Is that where do you even get that from? Probably a gun store. 
Because I think that's what it's used for mostly is packing guns and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I I you know that isn't that's the stuff that comes on the tools when you first uh, buy them and you yeah. got to clean the yeah. schmutz off. Um, so if you're talking about real long term storage, that might be uh, yeah. a, a way to go and probably a cheaper way than what you know my alternative might be, which is you know the sort of go to T nine bow shield solution. That T nine stuff is not cheap. No. Yeah. So if you've got a lot of real estate to cover, uh, you're going to want something that you can kind of just slap on and uh, and not have to worry about it as much. Well, and I don't know. I mean, how good is the T9 stuff over the long haul? I, I it's the supposed only time to I've be... ever used it was just like typical, you know, controlled in the shop maintenance. You know, every right, six right. months or so, you spray the top, and rest of the time I'm waxing it. So. Well, the I thing is, the... when you do those treatments, though, do you leave it on thick, or do you wind up, you know, wiping most of it off? Um, the, when I would do it, like the, the semi-annual shop maintenance or sometimes the annual shop maintenance was I'd spray it on and let it dry yeah. and it kind of became a little tacky and then I would kind of buff it a little bit. Gotcha. At least that's what the instructions said. <laughs> and that supposedly was supposed to be, you know, the, the best treatment for stuff. Yeah. Cause I, I always wipe it into a very, very thin layer and then wax the, the heck out of it just to make sure it's not sticky yeah. and tacky. So I'm guessing if you leave it a little bit thicker, you might be okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, my saw would still rust. I mean, you're in the desert. I'm not. So I would <laughs> right. still get rust on my table. Saw. I don't know what the problem is. It's fine for me. <laughs> what are you, what's your problem? People? <laughs> just move to the desert. But the, you know, that won't, if water drip, drips on it, that's not going to protect it. Whereas yeah. Cosmoline, I mean, you're talking about like a jelly that goes over top of it, that the water doesn't even touch the surface. It's sitting in the, you know, the, the whatever eighth inch thick goo that's over the top of it. Yeah. There's a uh, Cosmoline direct.com. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, sells Cosmoline oddly enough. And they've got a couple different types here. It looks like they've got their, their best seller. They say runs $119 for a gallon. Uh, it looks like they also have some uh, aerosols that you can use. Um, 60 bucks for a quart. So it's, it's, you know, that's pretty pricey stuff, but I, I don't know how long, how, how far it goes. You know what I mean? Like how much you can actually get out of a quart. Uh, but there you go. So that's, that's clearly that's going to work. You know, you know another, another it. potential option. There's a product called Ballistol, um, as in ballistics. It was originally invented by the Blistex? German army. For your lips? Yeah. Blistex? <laughs> Blistex, yeah. <laughs> Just rub it Blistol. with some Blistex. <laughs> it, it was the, the German army invented it because they wanted something that would protect their their weapons from rusting, but also act as a waterproofer and protect like leather and clothing. It was, you know, the soldier could put it in their um, utility belt. <laughs> What do you call that? Webbing <laughs> the utility belt. In their Batman utility belt. <laughs> yeah, they put it. It was, it was invented by Batman, actually. Yeah, it, it right right next to the Batarangs. Yeah, the, the Dark Knight used to be for the German army. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the soldier could carry it around. It could treat their boots like their, their gloves as well as their, you know, guns right and um we actually use it at the stepping stone museum and this is an entity that you know there is no climate control whatsoever most of the time the shop is open to the air and we get a fair amount of uh we're overlooking the chesapeake bay so we get a little amount of brackish <coughs> sea breeze and bless you thank you <laughs> um so we we get exposure to the elements a lot and i have not seen any rust pop up mm, there okay so we spray the stuff on and it's not like we do it all that often in fact i've 
I've never done it <laughs> the times I've been there. I do, I also use it as a lubricant for oil stones too. So I guess that's probably why they never rust. So that's a, another alternative you can get at a sporting goods store. Um, I know Cabela's carries it, Bass Pro Shops carries it. Um, that might be cheaper than going the Cosmoline route. Yeah, if, and looking at, uh, of course, Ballistall.com. Yes. And <laughs> they've got, uh, let's see, there's the lube um, that is... Six ounce aerosol, $24. Uh, let's hmm. see. There's something by the gallon here. Uh, one yeah. gallon, 70 bucks. So, how uh, much did you say? $70 plus 15. I thought you said 170. No, no, no. 70 bucks. Oh. <laughs> $70. So, yeah, that, that's definitely a good option for you, too. I didn't even know about that stuff. Yeah, it, it goes a long way. Well, there you go. Two good options for you. Well, three technically, but only two. I, I got to say, does, the, does overseas not have the internet? I mean, that was Roberto's excuse for not calling, not writing. <laughs> I was overseas. Oh, okay. What's wrong with you, Roberto? You probably Apparently there's no internet overseas. How dare he have other priorities? Seriously. Um, <laughs> all right. Thank you, Roberto, for that. Good to hear from you, dude. Hope all is well. Okay, we've got a couple of iTunes reviews that we will close out the festivities with. Two of them, in fact. And uh, don't forget, if you want to leave us a, a nice little review over there in iTunes, we'll read it over on the show. Uh, just look for us in iTunes store. We'll talk online. You'll find us. And you'll find 84 five-star ratings because, you know why? Because we're awesome. Sort 84 of. times. 84 times awesome. Okay, this one is from Brian Brazil, who uh, I recognize that name from emails. Uh, he says, three guys talking wood. Imagine having three great woodworking buddies over for coffee. That's pretty much the format for this podcast. The attitude is relaxed, they have an amazing dy dynamic, and they're laugh-out-loud funny. But if you're not careful, you might learn something. No. <laughs> you don't want that to happen. That's never been the goal. Okay, and 94AV8R. 94Aviator, maybe? That makes sense. Probably. I yeah. guess. Uh, absolutely the best. Excuse me, <laughs> I'm fighting a burp. Uh, Mark, Matt, and Shannon are the best woodworking podcasters on iTunes. I, I agree with that, frankly. They are knowledgeable and entertaining at the same time. I actually look forward to my drive to work when a new episode is available. Great work, gents. Thank you. Well, thank you, 94AV8R. Wow. We appreciate that. Increasing corporate productivity around the world. True a happy that. worker is a productive worker. That's what they say. That is what they say. All right. Well, I think that does it for us, Shannon. Uh, sans Matt, how, how do you feel about that? This was a little weird. I miss Matt. I miss him Matt, too. Matt, if you're listening, I miss you. Matt, come back. Love you. Don't, don't do this to us again. But you know what? Hey, we made a promise. We're going to do a show every two weeks, and if somebody can't make it, tough noogies, we're doing the show anyway. Heck yeah. So here we are. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you in a couple of weeks. See you. Bye. See you. Bye. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.